Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And today we are continuing our story about Dell computers. If you haven't heard the most recent episode, go and listen to that because that's part one. This is part two and will be the conclusion for now uh, for Dell because the company, spoiler alert, is still around. So, um, yeah. I'll probably have to do an update at some point in the future. But in our last episode, I left off in 1992 when Fortune magazine first ranked Dell computers on the Fortune 500 list. But a lot of stuff was going on that year in addition to that. Dell released uh, a laptop full-color notebook computer, but the mobile computers Dell produced were plagued with technical issues that vexed customers and Dell representatives alike. By 1993, the company was essentially forced to scrap the notebook line of products entirely, writing off the division and taking a $40 million hit against earnings to do so. Yikes. Engineers went back to the drawing board to design mobile computers that did not have such problematic technological issues. Also, in 1993, Dell lost $38 million due to an issue with foreign currencies. Now, this gets a bit businessy, but it's important for any corporation with global operations, and it's really not that difficult to understand from a high level, so let's talk about it. First, imagine you've got your home base of operations. So for Dell, that's the United States. And the basic unit of currency in the United States is the American dollar. But Dell also does business in other places, such as the United Kingdom, where the basic unit of currency is the halfpenny, or the farthing, or something. Just kidding, of course. It's the pound sterling. So an American company receiving money from a British customer has to exchange the customer's pounds sterling to American dollars, because it has to cross borders. So the American company says, all right, well, we'll take your pound sterling, we'll go to an exchange, exchange it for American dollars, and that's the payment. Or if an American company is paying a bill to a British person or a company, it has to exchange American dollars for pounds sterling. This is true for any two foreign currencies, of course. I'm just using dollars and pounds for the sake of an example, but, you know, it could be euro and yen. It can be whatever. Ultimately, business dealings between the U.S. headquarters and British holdings have to depend upon a currency exchange, and the American dollar and the pound sterling do not hold the same value. What's more, the value of each can change with respect to the other. So let's just start off with the current exchange rate as of the recording of this podcast for this example. One pound sterling is equal to 1.33 American dollars. But that value can change, and it's possible that it can change in such a way that a company could get the worse end of a deal because of an exchange. So let's say an American company accepts a payment, uh, which would be a receivable in business terms. And there's a British customer. The British customer pays for a brand new computer. And the exchange rate at the point where the British customer buys the computer is at $1.33 to the pound sterling. And the British customer is paying in pounds because that's what they have. It gets converted to American dollars. But then let's say the British customer gets his or her computer they run it for a little bit and they say, this isn't what I wanted. Uh, I'm going to want a refund. So they return the product in order to get a refund. Only now the exchange rate has changed. Now the exchange rate is 1.4 American dollars per pound sterling. 
Now, the British customer bought his or her computer in pounds. They expect the same number of pounds in return. Let's say that they spent 700 pounds on this computer. They expect a refund of 700 pounds. But now 700 pounds costs more American dollars than it used to because the pound is stronger against the dollar than it had been during the initial exchange. That means ultimately the American company has to pay more in the refund than it got in the initial purchase. The company loses money on the refund. To protect against that sort of thing, companies sometimes use a strategy called hedging. So, for example, a company might make an agreement that locks in an exchange rate for a transaction, and that exchange rate determines how much value must be exchanged. So let's say that they lock in this 1.33 American dollars to pound sterling. Then whenever the deal happens, because there was this agreement to lock in the exchange rate, that's the rate that is used to convert American dollars to pound sterling, no matter what the current exchange rate actually is. So the amount of money that changes hands could be slightly different than what it should be based on that exchange rate. Or the company might use options in which the company gets to set an exchange rate that it can opt to use. But if the actual exchange rate is more favorable, then the company can switch over to that one instead. So again, let's say that the American company says, all right, we agree with an option to go with 1.33 American dollars to pound sterling. When the deal is ready to happen, some for some reason, the British pound is, has gone weak against the dollar. And now it's more like 1.25 American dollars to British pound sterling. Because of the option approach, the American company says, nope, we're going to exercise our option and we're going to exchange at the current rate because we'll save more money that way. I'm not entirely certain what specific hedging strategy Dell Computers was using in the early 90s. Most of the articles I could find merely said that the foreign currency exchange hedging strategy was a total fiasco, and it cost the company nearly $40 million as a result. To top it all off, Dell began to face competition in the form of Compaq. Now, previously, Compaq had been known for selling much more expensive computers, But Compaq released a PC priced at $899. They were really taking aim at Dell's position in the marketplace. Dell responded by making some big price cuts in their own products, which the company could afford to do because their operating costs were much lower than Compaq's operating costs. So they had a little more wiggle room to work with prices. And the profit margins on Dell machines decreased, but the company was able to maintain its position in the market. It wasn't forced out by Compaq. This combination of factors led the company to post its first quarterly loss in its history in 1993. That quarterly loss was for $75 million. But the company was able to recover slightly within that fiscal year. At the end of the fiscal year, they they still posted a loss, but their loss was $36 million, which is terrible, but better than $75 million. That was for the fiscal year ending on January 30th, 1994. Now, several things changed at that time. One was that Dell Computers, upon the advice of a consultant named Kevin Rollins, would pull its products out of retail establishments. So they said goodbye to CompUSA and Walmart and Sam's Club, and they decided to no longer use resellers at all. Uh, The company had been undercutting its own revenue and also had to maintain much larger inventories for those retailers than when it was just doing the direct sales to customers. 
So Rollins would end up coming over to join Dell Computers as a full-time employee. He'll come back into the story in just a moment. Another change was that Dell Computers stopped focusing on the consumer market as its primary customers. The laptop problems, the increased competition from Compaq, and the recession had all been factors in that consideration. Also, Dell's corporate clients were becoming increasingly important and representing a much larger source of regular revenue. So for the next couple of years, Dell would switch its focus almost entirely toward selling computers to companies and to large organizations, not to your average consumer. In 1994, Mort Topfer joined the company as vice chairman. Mort Topfer had formerly worked as an executive at Motorola, and his original plan was just to act as an advisor for Michael Dell for just a few months. And he had even built a retirement home for his wife and himself to share in Nevada, but he ended up staying around with the company for five years. He acted as another mentor to Michael Dell. He helped guide the company through restructuring and through growth, and he also took on more of the operations of the company so that Michael Dell could focus primarily on long-term strategies and the big picture. The company righted itself that year. By 1995, Dell reported profits of $149 million. It also grew by 50%. And Dell had entered the online world and joined the information superhighway. The company launched a website. Now, in 1995, it was largely an informative website. It was not an e-commerce site. So essentially, it would tell you, hey, call this phone number if you want to buy a computer. Dell would actually launch an online store the following year in 1996. Six months after launch, that website was generating $1 million in sales per day through the website. Three years later, the company was making more than $30 million in sales per day online, selling directly to consumers over the internet. It was the internet that allowed Dell to get back on that model of marketing directly to home consumers as well as to corporations. While Dell continued to serve big corporate clients, it once again could court those average consumers, all thanks to the internet. Now, I have a lot more to say about what Dell Computers was doing, but before I go into that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. In 1996, the company continued to do huge business both in its corporate accounts and with direct sales through the internet. Dell was able to coordinate customer orders with its own supply chain, and that kept delivery really efficient, and it decreased the need for maintaining those large inventories of computers. In 1997, Dell sold its 10 millionth computer. It was by then the fourth largest computer company. It was only behind IBM, Hewlett-Packard, and Compaq. By 1998, the company was pulling in a profit just shy of $1 billion and had moved up to number two. And in 1999, Dell would take first place, overtaking Compaq as the largest seller of desktop PCs. It didn't lead across all kinds of PCs, like mobile it was not as high, but on desktops, it was number one. Around this time, the annual sales were reaching about $25 billion. The company began to make more specialized computers, like servers, including data storage servers, which put Dell in more direct competition with Hewitt-Packard and Sun Microsystems. Compaq was also in that space. Corporate sales, however, were starting to plateau, and so Dell looked to make a more aggressive move in the home consumer space. 
The company began to slash prices on home computers, which prompted something of a price war in the home computer industry. Great time to be a shopper for a computer at that point, but not so great if you were a company trying to make money from it. Among Dell's competitors, there was some troubling news. Hewlett-Packard and Compaq were looking at a merger. Now, that merger was a truly enormous idea. Hewitt-Packard CEO Carly Fiorina had led her company in a $25 billion merger deal with Compaq, which was a pretty contentious event within HP. Uh, Walter Hewitt, the son of the company's co-founder, led a campaign and even a stock proxy battle against Fiorina opposing this merger. Several shareholders were arguing that Compaq's business already had a lot of overlap with stuff that HP was doing, and that it made no sense for HP to get into the low-margin computer business, uh, where you're not making that much profit on a per-sale basis. They even pointed out that the main competitor, IBM, was actually extricating itself from that very industry. This is right around the same time that IBM said, you know what, we tried selling to consumers, directly to to home consumers. Turns out that's an unsustainable business market for us. And they turned their focus more to giant businesses. The merger ultimately caused or exacerbated existing problems for HP, uh, depending upon your point of view. And the company would end up losing about half of its market value. Fiorina would leave HP in 2005, The company would later split into two different companies, and ZDNet would refer to the HP Compact merger as the biggest merger disaster in tech history. However, they are not the one opinion here. There are a lot of people who argue opposite. They say it was a successful merger. It took time, but that ultimately it succeeded in what it was supposed to do and said that the integration of the two companies ultimately worked better than what a lot of people were predicting. Either way, whether you consider it a success or a failure, and it's weird to think that people have such radically different views of this merger, uh, seeing two of Dell's big competitors join forces probably was a little intimidating at the time. The lowest price Dell computer in 2001 would be the $599 SmartStep desktop. This had an Intel Celeron processor. The Celeron was Intel's low-end processor. It was meant for less expensive computers. So slightly less powerful than the stuff you would find in the higher-end machines. It came with 128 megabytes of RAM. It had 20 gigabytes of storage. It had a CD-ROM drive, a 15-inch cathode ray tube monitor. Oh, the old CRT monitor days. Those gigantic monitors. And it also had Windows XP as the operating system. Uh, There were no configuration options, so that helped keep the price low, but it meant that, you know, what you bought was what you got. You You couldn't configure it and make it better. In addition to slashing prices and building inexpensive machines, Dell launched a new marketing campaign, one I remember really well. So there was an actor named Ben Curtis who took on a role of a guy named Steve. Steve was kind of a a laid-back guy who had a frighteningly exhaustive knowledge of Dell computers that was matched only by his enthusiasm for Dell computers. And he would tell people in commercials all about the amazing specs of the various computers. Uh, Particularly, he would be addressing the parents of a student. Hey, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, your son here wants a Dell. And would go on to talk about all the amazing features of this Dell computer and how it was price so incredibly low 
And when they were won over by his pitch, he would joyfully exclaim, dude, you're getting Adele. There were more than 20 of those commercials. But the ads worked. They were popular. They struck a nerve. They had the right balance of humor and information in them. They got the Dell name into a lot more households, and Dell saw increased sales in the home consumer market as a result. But overall, the company was still dealing with a plateau situation. In 2000, Dell's sales reached nearly $32 billion. That's a lot of money. But in 2001, they remained flat. They didn't decline, but they didn't increase either. And here's the thing about companies. Shareholders always want to see a company grow because it's not enough to do well. You have to get bigger because shareholders want their investment to increase in value. So in February 2001, Dell held its first major layoff in its history, and it cut about 1,700 jobs. The company was still doing better than many of its competitors were. Some companies like IBM had already pulled out of the consumer market. In 2001, Kevin Rollins, the man who had acted as a consultant for Dell a few years earlier, became the new president of the company. Michael Dell would remain the CEO, and Rollins tried to diversify the company's products. He wanted to acquire a data storage company uh, called EMC. The two companies had created a distribution deal partnership together, but Rollins felt it would be best if Dell acquired this other company, which had been around since 1979. Michael Dell, however, did not like this idea, and he struck it down multiple times, and they would argue about it several times throughout Kevin Rollins' tenure as uh, president. Rollins would later say that Dell was worried that this acquisition would destabilize the company. And it's funny because in 2016, many years after Rollins had left the company, Dell did in fact acquire EMC for a whole lot of money. I'll talk more about that toward the end of this episode. Dell did start offering other products, however, including stuff like digital audio players, printers, and televisions. This was not in the same realm as what Rollins was thinking. He was thinking about infrastructure types of products, things that companies would use to run the businesses that they do. And Michael Dell was thinking of more sort of consumer-friendly technologies that were closer in, at least in concept, to the computers he had been building for years. In 2003, the company would change its name again, now calling itself Dell Incorporated, to help reflect that the company was no longer focusing solely on computers. In March 2004, Michael Dell decided to step down as CEO of the company. Kevin Rollins would take over both as president and CEO. Michael Dell, however, would stay on as chairman of the board, but ostensibly he had stepped back from the daily operation of the company. This is not the end of Michael Dell's involvement with the company that shares his name, however. Rollins, meanwhile, had set some really high goals. And in 2004, he had a whole lot of momentum going behind him. He had no reason to believe that Dell couldn't hit these goals. So he wanted Dell to hit $60 billion in revenue by the end of 2006 and $80 billion by 2009 at the latest. He also was guiding the company to enter into new businesses, including providing services and not just hardware. But things did not go smoothly, to put it lightly. Not that the rough times all fall at Rollins' feet. He's not responsible for all of it. For one thing, corporations started to back off their previously aggressive upgrading and purchasing strategies. 
a lot of companies had been buying computers and upgrading computers at a really aggressive schedule. So you might have a company buy all new computers for its employees and then upgrade them a year later. But more companies were starting to wait longer to upgrade their machines because the machines that were coming out could still do all the work that they needed them to do for longer. They were that fast. So there was less demand for computers, which was a huge blow to Dell, which got about 85% of all its revenue from its corporate clients, mostly in North and South America. On the home consumer front, customers were beginning to feel the latest computers in the market offered up very few advantages compared to earlier machines. They weren't seeing as much innovation in the space, and customer service, which was once one of Dell's strongest features, was now seen as an eyesore, a chore. Dell was pushing more customers toward an online customer support model, and the company had started to rely more heavily on customer service representatives who were located overseas. So they weren't, customers weren't getting the the attention, the personal attention that they had in previous generations of Dell products anymore. Dell's competitors were doing better. Uh, some of them were relying more heavily on retail stores. And Dell obviously had eschewed that. They didn't like the low profit margins. They were undercutting their own sales. They found that direct sales worked better for Dell's model. But the truth of the matter is a lot of consumers wanted to be able to see and touch the computers they were considering buying before they actually put money toward it. And if your business is dependent upon orders by phone or online, then the consumer never gets a chance to actually try out the computer before making that leap. So it became something of a barrier for sales at that point. Also, desktops were starting to lose steam and notebook computers were starting to become more popular and Dell was lagging behind on notebook computers. And finally, Dell had long relied on upselling customers with upgrades to basic computers. But by the mid-2000s, even a basic computer was more than capable enough to do most of the work people needed. You, you still had niche markets like gamers who wanted to have the best of the best. But for someone who wanted to run word processing, maybe do some web browsing, that kind of stuff, they didn't need anything more than a base model. So they would buy the cheapest model, and that was the one that had the lowest profit margin for the company. So Dell was stumbling, and HP was able to regain its spot as the largest PC company in the world. Dell's stock had hit a high in July 2005, but by the end of 2006, the price was down 37%. Rollins did guide Dell into one acquisition that I mentioned in a previous episode of Tech Stuff. That acquisition happened on March 22, 2006. That was when Dell bought the boutique gaming computer designer company Alienware. And Alienware continues to operate as a subsidiary to Dell, largely autonomous. Uh, but they get to rely heavily on Dell's assets, which is helpful. Then, in that around that same time, there was a video that went viral as much as videos can at that time. It was very widespread. It showed a Dell notebook computer that had burst into flames. Now, the source of the problem was a battery, and the battery ultimately came from Sony, and Sony ended up having to do a big recall on these batteries. But it was a Dell notebook in the video, and that did not help the company's image. To make matters worse, in August 2006, Dell had to disclose that it was under investigation by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a.k.a. the SEC. Even by the end of 2006, no one really outside of the matter had any idea of what the investigation was actually about. They just knew it was happening. 
But even that was enough to cast a bit of a pall over Dell. The details of that investigation wouldn't become clear until years later. I'll explain exactly what the SEC was looking at in the next section. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. In 2007, the board of Dell asked uh, Rollins to resign as president and CEO. Michael Dell would once again come forward to take control of the company, and the company was still under investigation for mysterious reasons that wouldn't become clear until 2010. Dell Incorporated didn't exactly rebound immediately under Michael Dell's leadership. The company was pursuing a new strategy that he was calling Dell 2.0, it was He was working really hard to diversify the company's product line while simultaneously reducing the number of employees at the company, downsizing, in other words, or laying people off or firing people, however you want to word it. Dell also began to launch carbon-neutral programs for customers that got a reputation as being a green company. Many of the employees who were laid off were at the management level. When Dell resumed command of the company, he originally had 20 managers reporting directly to him. He reduced that number to a dozen shortly thereafter. Ultimately, the company would announce it was eliminating about 10% of its total workforce, which amounted to nearly 9,000 jobs. More would follow over the course of the next couple of years. The company also closed offices and manufacturing facilities in Canada, in Ireland, and the United States. It began to rely more heavily on its factories in Asia or with contract manufacturers overseas in order to cut costs. Alienware's facility in Florida and a factory in Austin, Texas that were making uh, high-end servers remained viable. Those manufacturing facilities stayed active because they were both higher margin businesses, but a lot of the other manufacturing facilities started to close down. In 2008 and 2009, the company made a couple of big acquisitions. Uh, It bought Equalogic, which is a storage firm, and also Perot Systems. The company also created a new end-to-end IT service for customers. And Dell got a late start in the smartphone market, but they did get into it in 2009. They introduced a smartphone called the Mini 3i smartphone. It ran on an operating system called Ophone OS, the letter O followed by the word phone. Uh, From 2009 to 2012, Dell would try to secure a spot in the smartphone landscape, but ultimately the company would withdraw from that market. By December 2012, Dell was done with smartphones, at least as a manufacturer, although they would sometimes sell them in their store. But what about that SEC investigation I mentioned earlier? Well, in 2010, the SEC revealed that Dell had been under investigation because of some accounting practices in which the company had failed to declare certain payments it had received from another little company called Intel. So here's what happened. According to the SEC, uh, this is according to the allegations, Dell received large payments from Intel in return for a promise that Dell would not build computers using microprocessors that were made by Intel's rival, AMD. The practice apparently stretched back as far as 2003, and the SEC said that those payments back in 2003 accounted for 10% of Dell's operating income. That amount would eventually peak in the second quarter of the 2007 fiscal year for Dell. That's when Intel's payment was 76% of Dell's operating income. That is incredible. Dell had been using that money, according to the SEC, to help pad out numbers for sales when reporting earnings to Wall Street. So, in other words, 
Dell, the company, was taking money from Intel. They were doing it for the reason to suppress one of Intel's competitors, so sort of an anti-competitive practice here, and then use that money to beef up their own earnings to investors. Now, without admitting it or denying any of the allegations, Dell entered into an agreement with the SEC, which included paying a $100 million fine. Both Kevin Rollins and Michael Dell individually agreed to pay $4 million in fines. They also did not admit to or deny any of the charges. Dell was really having trouble with its business model at this time, too. It was also finding it challenging to enter the services market, partly because while Dell made hardware, the products that it made still relied on other companies' software. Meanwhile, Dell's competitors, some of them were making integrated systems. They were building the hardware and the software. And so it made that a more attractive system for a lot of companies. So Dell was having trouble entering into this field, and the company recognized that that was really a a potential good source of revenue if they could just crack it. In 2013, Michael Dell decided that extreme measures were necessary. He felt the company had strayed off of its path significantly. It needed to get into the services industry, but at the same time, it was beholden to shareholders, and shareholders might end up holding the company back from making some big risky decisions. So he led the charge to buy back the company, effectively turning it back into a private company. Michael Dell, Silver Lake Partners, and Microsoft would work together to make this deal happen, and it cost nearly $25 billion. The deal was eventually approved by the board, and the group purchased all shares of Dell for $13.88 per share, and so it was a private company once again. In the five years since going private, Dell invested billions of dollars in expanding its business in hardware, software, and services, including the acquisition of EMC. That was the company that Kevin Rollins wanted to purchase way back in the mid-2000s. When Dell actually did acquire the company, they did so for $67 billion, which was a record-breaking deal for tech companies. The new parent company of both Dell that makes computers and EMC is Dell Technologies. Some company divisions, like the Infrastructure Solutions Group, have been doing pretty well, doubling in revenue over time as it sells products and services to businesses. Others, like the Client Solutions Group division, have seen their revenues on the decline. The Client Solutions Group is the part of Dell that produces computers and peripherals. In early July 2018, rumors were confirmed and Dell Incorporated released an announcement that the company plans to once again go public. So five years ago, they go private. Now they're ready to go public again, holding a new initial public offering. And it's a very different company from that old upgrade kit business that Michael Dell launched out of his dorm room while at the University of Texas in 1984. Today, Dell's focus tends to be on big things like infrastructure, storage devices, data centers, and services, not just hardware, but services to corporations. The company still makes computers, and you can still buy them, but the bulk of the revenues come from much bigger clients than your average home consumer. And Dell has invested in an area sometimes called fog or edge computing. This is a type of computing in which you have sensors and other devices that not only gather data, but also process it to at least some extent before sending that information onward toward the cloud. 
And it's a little bit different from the standard Internet of Things operating procedure. In that field, devices stream data directly to the cloud, and that's where the data is processed. So it's really just a matter of where does the data get its initial processing, and then what do you use that information for? Uh, Where will Dell go next? Who's to say? The company is scheduled to hold its IPO later in 2018. Uh, There's no telling exactly how well that will go yet. And Dell has some big challenges ahead of it. Uh, It's still very much a hardware-focused company. And some people say that maybe that ends up being uh, a danger to it in the long run because more and more people are saying the cloud, cloud services, are where it's at. The problem is Dell is way behind on the cloud services game. You've already got companies like Amazon and Google that have uh, really firmly put a foundation down in cloud services. So for Dell to compete with them would be particularly challenging. Now, it is true that cloud services depend upon hardware. So you can't run a cloud service without actually having computers to run it off of. But it's also true that these other companies, these big cloud companies, for the most part, are building their own proprietary systems or they're building them off of off-the-shelf components, very much the way Dell computers had done for years. So it remains to be seen whether Dell can cater to those cloud services companies or rise up next to them to be another big cloud services operator. Uh, There are huge challenges ahead. In the meantime, the company continues to make computers. Alienware continues to operate as a a largely a a high-end gaming computer retailer. And uh, the world keeps on spinning, man. I'm sure I will end up revisiting this topic sometime in the future to talk about what else Dell has been up to. But in the meantime, that catches us up to the company today. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it is a company, a technology, a person in tech, maybe there's someone you would like me to interview or have on as a guest, let me know. Send me a message. The email address for our show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle there is techstuffhsw. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 